Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing great today, Tim. I love the guests that we have on. I love his mission, and I can't wait for people to hear it and maybe buy his book. We'll get to that in a little bit because the $65,000 question is, how are you? Well, I Sir. am doing great. Thanks a lot for asking. When you when you said the sixty five thousand dollar question, it reminded me of the sixty four. Is it the sixty four thousand dollar pyramid? I don't know. It was like multiples I of, so. of eight. Yeah. Anyway, Lance, I'm doing great. This episode, we have on a very interesting fellow. His name is Christopher Armitage. He's a veteran of the United States military, and he wrote a book called Forced Sex Trafficking, what it is and how you can end it. And that's what we discuss here in this episode. I think it's really remarkable to hear somebody be so positive and motivated to realistically conceive a way to end something like forced sex trafficking. The guy knows what he's talking about. You mentioned that he was a veteran of the uh, Air Force in the military. He also holds a Master of Science degree in Homeland Security, and he tackles this problem this epidemic, like tackling a mission that he was assigned in the military with precision, with clear eyes. And I can't recommend this book enough. And I can't recommend listening to this interview a couple of times enough. Yeah, it's a very consumable book. I got it on Kindle and uh, you can really get through it pretty quickly. It's fascinating and definitely helpful to learn about for sex trafficking and uh, how you can possibly prevent it. I have two young daughters. These are things that I need to know in my life. And be sure to review the book once you order it and read it. Uh, we talk about how reviews go a long way in helping create the momentum with what you're trying to put out there. So it takes just a second to review it on Amazon. And you can get this book, like you said, Tim, on Kindle, or you could get the actual paperback copy on Amazon. And make sure you review and rate the book. That goes a long way. We speak about it in the interview a bit. That goes a long way in uh, maintaining the momentum of this mission that uh, Chris has. And there's a link to buy his book in the show notes. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. Make sure to follow us on all the social media platforms. We're having a lot of fun on TikTok, so find Crawl Space there on TikTok. All right, we're going to break for commercial here, and we'll be right back with Christopher Armitage. And be sure to swing by crawlspace-media to check out everything going on in our little crawlspace universe. And also, we are partnered with a wonderful company called Glassbox Media. Check out what they do at glassboxmedia.com. Welcome to the podcast, Christopher Armitage. How are you today? Doing fantastic. How about yourself? We're doing great. Um, this is going to be a very heavy, we said this in the beginning, that this is going to be a fun conversation, but it's a heavy conversation. And I think we use the word fun because already from the get-go, it seems like you want to talk about this and it's uh, going to be informative. Uh, and, and the message that we're going to convey, I think, is going to resonate really well with the listeners. But before we get into all of that and the heaviness, why don't you introduce yourself? Because you 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 reached out to us via email and you have this pretty incredible piece of writing and we want to make sure that our listeners know about you. Yeah, well I appreciate it. And and as far as the you know challenging subject matter, you know, climbing Everest is is a, a horrible matter that, that people do, you know, and, and and still 
there is value. There's so much value in going out there and doing it and about talking about challenging things. So I appreciate you guys an incredible amount for being there to have conversations and, and not having the fear stop you from approaching them. Uh, it takes courage. Um, everyone who goes out there and has these kind of conversations is, is ex executing some courage right there. A little bit of my background, my name's Christopher Armitage. Uh, I'm an Air Force veteran. I served in the Air Force for almost a decade as security forces, deployed twice um, to Southeast Asia, was fortunate enough to lead a small presidential security team when President Obama went to Bataloche, Argentina. He was there for eight hours. Uh, we got to be there for a month to set up, which was pretty fantastic and an amazing experience. Uh, I, while I was active duty and over the course of two deployments, among other things, I earned my associate's, bachelor's, and master's degrees. Uh, my master's is a master's of science in homeland security, and I completed uh, my capstone research project research project uh, in 2018, and that was uh, on using emerging technologies to combat human trafficking, which is being done a lot in the private sector already. I had the opportunity a few years ago to sit down with some folks at Facebook and talk to them about their position uh, that they have of, uh, well, you know, now they're meta, but uh, of operations, global operate, global security operations manager and the role. And now they have whole teams that are using these emerging technologies to combat human trafficking. So the goal with that research paper was to help bring that into the public sector. Um, and then I decided I wanted to turn that into a book by the right, it was recommended to me by my mentor uh, for the for the book, and she uh, she also recommended submitting it to journals. And I talking to people, I said, you know, the the technology stuff, it's interesting, it's valid, but we don't have the funding for these organizations, private or public, the government and non-government organizations. We don't have the attention on these issues, and there isn't a willingness among elected officials to get it done. And so I wrote the book on how we can do that. Yeah, yeah. Tell us a little bit more about your background, what you did in um, the military. Sure. Uh, so I was fortunate enough while I was in to experience some really incredible places and, and folks you know, and, and work with some amazing folks. Uh, for example, I, my first deployment was on the Iraq border uh, with Kuwait. And we went out there for six months. It was in support of Operation, Endure Operation Iraqi Freedom. And border security 100 it hailed our first night there got up to maybe 120 degrees by the time we left and we were working outside for 12 14 hour shifts in 40 degree or 40 40 pounds 50 pounds of body armor multiple guns and uh just standing out there checking ids getting hit by sandstorms and that was a heck of an experience and it, it gave me a lot of room to sit with my thoughts and think about the impact I wanted to make on the world. You know, a lot of why I joined the military was because I did not want to go to college because I was, I said to myself, I didn't like high school. Why would I want to go to this for another four years? And then once I was in, I just, I realized how much more of an impact officers uh, were able to have in the strategic mission. And that if we want to make an impact, we need to be willing to do things that we don't like doing. And so, and we got learn to love them if you can. That was one of the biggest lessons that I realized over that time is if you can learn to love something that's good for you, it's going to get you a lot farther. The man who walks because he loves walking gets a lot farther than the man who walks to the destination. Um, then I did standard law enforcement for a few years, got to work extensively with military working dog handlers, which was a, a blessing for sure. And 
Then deployment number two in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. That was actually on the Oman Emirates border, though. Um, and again, I worked with the Emirati military extensively, which was a really interesting cross-cultural experience. I had worked with the Kuwaiti military a little bit before that, too. Um, but the Emirati military was very different. The, the cultural differences were really enlightening and kind of helped break me out of that uh, America-centric, you know, or we're the center of the world type attitude. And also they had stuff that was better than us. Wait, and that, wait, that was... wait, hold on. What are you talking about? No one has anything better than us. <laughs> I, I know, I was that shocked. I was like this for six months. I was like, your gear is so nice. And they just give that to you. Uh, <laughs> And so, you know, that, that, well, even, even their public services, to, to be honest, you know, we, we traveled around, we got to visit Dubai while I was, while I was on, in, in the Emirates and I was, I was blown away by the public services that they had. I mean, they, they hire people there from the government, they hire, the government hires people to just walk down the streets in light, like canary, or, um, uh, like Robin's egg blue, Robin's shell blue jumpsuits and clean up trash just all over the place. And, uh, that, I don't know. I guess I, I never really left New York and New Jersey until I joined the military. So I was like, you can do that. Uh, and so that's, you know, I, I, I pursued Homeland Security, honestly, not uh, with the, you know, I, I picked it because the people who were successful that I worked with had that degree. And I got really fortunate that my interests in public policy and preventing human suffering as much as I can as much as any of us can, you know, uh, that it intersected. And so, you know, I ended up needing to do the capstone project and I picked it because I said it's universally despised. You're not going to find someone who's going to argue for, for sex trafficking. And I know that things can be done to improve the situation. And so why don't I try to find some of those novel solutions? Now the paper that I wrote, uh, about using emerging technologies to combat human trafficking, uh, I wanted to tackle something that was seen as maybe impossible or very far off in the future. And the FBI, uh, as well as a few uh, international law enforcement organizations have said they don't think that we're going to be able to say, create, you know, machine learning opportunities with publicly available data in the foreseeable future to do this. So they said that 10 years ago. The advances that we made have been incredible. And the people I've spoken to at Google and at, at Meta have both, they're both actively employing these technologies on their platforms. And I wrote this paper four or five years ago. So it, you know, I don't know, maybe the FBI will catch up in the next 10 to 20 years. And, you know, just more I dug into it, the more I realized that uh, we have this really interesting patchwork that needs to be repaired. And the, the military was kind of my introduction to witnessing that patch, patchwork from the inside. I want to get into your book and the mission that you have, but I want to explore a little bit more about the cultural differences that you mentioned that you ended up getting because you were in the military and because you were doing these things. I mean, how quickly was it in place in your brain that you were going to apply those cultural differences to some of your, your work uh, in the future? It, it didn't it didn't hit me until it's kind of one of those things where once you realize something, it seems obvious. And like, I remember working with, um, the, uh, realizing that, uh, we're taught so much that things are how they are because they have to be that way. 
and there's nothing we can do about it, taking our power away from us to actually make an impact on the world around us, that is destroyed by going out and meeting other cultures, especially ones like in Kuwait. I, I One of the biggest mind-blowing mind things I've ever learned, I was talking to some Kuwaiti soldiers, and they told me that a few years ago, their government sold more oil, and they gave every Kuwaiti citizen $30,000. If you have a kid, the government gives you just $5,000. Uh, and, you know, realizing that uh, there's just, there's a lot of people who are invested in keeping things the way that they are in every country and keeping things staying the same that, you, you know, the, the Middle Eastern cultures had a really, really wonderful influence on me for realizing that. And then I ended up having the opportunity over the last two years to spend a few months in New Delhi, India. And... Again, another powerful experience for kind of breaking cultural hegemony and having the opportunity to see things through other people's perspective. They see us as the bad guys, a lot of them. Not, not to act like one billion people living in India are, are, are a monolith, but the, the, a lot of folks I met, you know, had, had just really, really interesting views on how we weren't that great. Although then again, in Kuwait, they were really grateful for us. I was working in guard towers that had bullet holes from when Saddam invaded. All right. Well, your book is called Forced Sex Trafficking, What It Is and How You Can End It. Did you see sex trafficking in the military or were you exposed to it in your time in the military? We had communications about it and were taught about it, especially in intelligence briefings, even stateside, um, a station uh, in Washington state in, in a rural, more rural town. And we still received intelligence briefings from local law enforcement about for sex trafficking in the area, trafficking in the area, and its connection to, it's just woven into so many other criminal activities. It's, it's kind of like prohibition, you know, alcohol was woven into all of that when it was illegal. And so uh, it, while I wasn't directly working, you know, against it, we were very clued in on, I mean, even there was in the army while I was, I was in the air force, but while I was in the air force, uh, there was a, a bust in the army at Fort hood where there was a forced sex trafficking ring being run by soldiers. And it was 30 or 40 victims who, and they, the soldiers had connections before they joined the military to uh, criminal organizations and continued that once they were in. Yeah, pretty horrific. But um, I, I didn't love all my time in the military. It, but I learned that, like I said, from those cross-cultural experiences, um, we're going to be told time and time again that we can't do anything to change the circumstances around us. And that's, uh, that's a lie I don't think any of us should have to, have to accept. Right. I, I wrote down, do you think that these types of things could change these types of you know sex trafficking and and all of and and certain types of corruption would that change if we were to adopt just a little bit of those cultural differences if we were to say if we were to give our citizens a certain amount of money because we made a profit on this export you know if we were to invest more into our uh citizens you're nodding so i'll let you have the floor on it no, I love it. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to hear you say that because that's the thing is there are places where there's more of this and places where there's less of it. And it's pretty easy to tell in India. I met people who, and this is, this is, you know, it, it, it was tough to see, it, you know, we go up, uh, we're, we're, I'm with my, uh, my guide and my friend and 
a like 15 year old girl walks up to us in a sari and she's holding a baby that looks like it's dead and she's asking for money and once she goes away my guide of course was like uh was a young woman who was about my age in her 20s and she was like yelled at her to get away and i was like that seems kind of harsh and she said uh they so the, the folks who, who that one girl the community that girl was a part of uh they put opium on their breast and go to breastfeed the child and the, the child because they, they won't whine because they're cry because they're hungry and then they have more kids so that they can sell them into trafficking and it's people who are financially secure don't don't fall to those depths i'm not mad at that 15 year old girl who has a child that was hers and probably was sold already and, and all these different circumstances if you want to fight slavery it helps to have people not so desperate that they feel they need to sell others into it and you know i mean then even there's plenty of countries with legalized sex work unionized sex work that's absolutely a part of it so fighting poverty is fighting sex trafficking fighting um uh you know uh, horrible policies like the war on drugs is fighting sex trafficking and those those are part of that ecosystem of unwellness and toxicity in different societies that creates more or less of this issue and i i saw it firsthand because who's the last person who wants sex work to be legal it's the people who are currently profiting off it i you know if you're a weed dealer in a state that hasn't legalized it yet you're probably you, you should be donating to the politicians who don't want to legalize it because that's going to that's going to that's their income stream that disappears you know the cartels don't want legalized cannabis in the united states that's a big cut to their money and it's the same with sex work. You said um, something about the war on drugs. Can you uh, just go into that a little bit more? Because I feel like there's something there. Yeah, uh, I, so I had the opportunity. One of the people I interviewed for the book was uh, he was in this uh, central intelligence agency for 28 years. 23 of those were in anti-sex anti, uh, trafficking, particularly among the cartels in South America. And he, first of all, he didn't, he wouldn't explicitly say it, but he talked around the idea that maybe sex trafficking or that sorry that um that sex work should be legal uh, i just don't know if he was ready to make that that full leap yet but um as far as uh, with drug trafficking the two are incredibly intertwined and, and, and a huge number of women uh are forced into sex work by or you know sex slavery uh by giving drugs against their will i spoke to a 19 year old woman who's a mother the Fortunately, her, her child was in uh, adoptive care, but she was 19 years old, already had a kid and was banging the meth, uh, which is you, you inject it directly into the vein. It's a lot less expensive uh, and, and gives a bigger high. And she so she has these bruises on her arms telling me about her experience with sex trafficking and how women on the streets get nabbed right up and voluntarily or involuntarily, they're getting drugs, they become addicted. And... Again, if, if you have a good healthcare system or um, access to uh, assistive and rehabilitative uh, organizations, you don't have, you know, don't have to worry about being homeless. And if you're a homeless child or woman, you don't see as many homeless children and women. And it's not because there's less of them, it's because traffickers snag them up. Now, how that intersects with the drug trade and the war on drugs is they are shipped together. Humans are shipped like drugs from one place to another, and they're sold like drugs from one place to another. And so pretty much the same organizations run both of them.
on a transnational level and a local level. And, you know, to, to address something earlier too, or actually, uh, when you're ready, though, I, I really look forward to when we get to the part about just how much of an impact any single person listening to this conversation could have, because that's my favorite part, but we should save it for the end. So what were your hopes in writing this book? Like, who were you trying to reach? I want to reach anyone who, one, feels fear for their safety. Anyone uh, who says to themselves that this is bad and I wish that it wasn't happening. As simple as that sounds, I really wanted to re reach people who felt powerless to do something about so horrible. There are so many people out there who, you know, burying your head in the sand is a defense mechanism. You do it because it, it's tough to look at, at reality because reality can be a really, really, really dark place. But we don't get to fix problems if we don't look at reality, if we don't stare it in the face. It was, it was a big lesson I learned uh, through my travels in India was there you're confronted with a lot of darkness there, but it wasn't swept under the rug. It was right there in your face. And so this book's for the people who are ready to take ownership over making the world a better place and helping to prevent as much suffering as they can. Where does this happen in this country? And my follow-up to that is, is there a misconception as to where it happens in this country? Great question. Everywhere. It is, I mean, even in Spokane, Washington, a, you know, a smaller city in eastern Washington state, there was just an incredible amount. When I talked to the law enforcement there, they actually have a dedicated section for human trafficking. They can explicitly tell you, if you go to this location, which one of the main ones was a community college that was in a rundown neighborhood that didn't have a lot of cameras. Those are the hotspots. Those victims are everywhere. And it's, it's, there isn't a small town or a truck stop that isn't a possible place to sell. It's, it's, it's the same as the drug trade. Drugs are everywhere. And that the more we push them under and, 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 and you know, they meet violence with violence, just the darker, deeper places they go to and the, the darker and deeper effects that people are willing to have or actions that people are willing to take to keep it hidden. And so, I mean, it, it doesn't, it, while it's like, okay, if you're a woman, you're far more likely to be a victim. If, if you're a child, you're more likely to be a victim if you're homeless and they don't, and then men, much, much, much less likely. And then racial disparities, sure. But there is not a geographic location that protects you from being around it or being, you know, it's, it's like saying, is there, a, is there a small town in America or in the world where you don't have to worry about, you know, drug abuse? There are places where there's much less of it, but if a market is going to pop up, then it can seep into that area. And especially in America, it is, you know, there are places that have done a better job. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to find forced sex trafficking in places, that's the easier thing to say is, is where you won't find it. You're not gonna find forced sex trafficking in places where there are sex worker unions and it's accessible to folks, you know, but any town with small town massage parlors, for example, those are a real hotbed where they ship people over and, you know, they, they get them here and then they say, okay, you owe us $30,000, so you're gonna work it off. Or, you know, uh, anywhere with a homelessness problem big issue. And, and I can't believe some of the towns I've seen 
stricken with with uh, with houseless and homeless populations. It's really unfortunate. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. All right, I want to um, sort of take a, st- a little bit of a step back and just speak generally. Can, can we get a general definition of what um, trafficking or, or, or forced um, trafficking is? Because you mentioned it happens at truck stops. Um, basically, it's it's everywhere. It's very common out there. Does this involve humans being chained up, uh, shipped in containers, things like this? Like what what... What are we talking about when we say human trafficking or forced human trafficking? That's a really important thing. That's part of why with the book, the first part of that, that title, you know, forced sex trafficking, what it is and how you can end it is important. And it can take such a, a, a an incredible diverse range. It can be, um, you know, someone, you know, a, 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 you know, a sex slave, someone who's being coerced or forced into sex working, you know, standing on a street corner. It can be people being shipped over in shipping containers. It can be someone at a massage parlor. It can be a teenage girl who believes she's making a new friend online and then ends up on a webcam for money uh, based on uh, manipulation or blackmail. All of that is forced sexual activity for monetary gain. And the amount of violence, especially violence towards women and children that is wrapped up in that is, it's, it's another example of how widespread uh, violence against women and children is and isn't discussed because it takes so many different forms. Okay, I think that's a pretty good segue to uh, my question about the comment you made when you said people tend to or want to bury their head in the sand instead of tackling an issue like this. Uh, When in history, in your opinion, did that start to happen? When did people start to not want to see the the dark side of their community and start to zone out and like you said bury their head well you know there's there's some interesting psychology to that because i think anywhere you find humans who are part of a system uh that harms others we are it's in our nature to not want to see ourselves as the bad guys to see ourselves as um oppressors or harming others and so being able to look at that in the face is is um, whether it's slavery or gosh, just any 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 you know violence or racism that's happened throughout history. We're I don't know maybe the Romans had it figured out a little bit. Also, their slaves were all different races and were often free. So maybe they were maybe maybe they had it figured out. The Greeks a little bit more, but really we're part of uh, a shift. I think we are here right now. Everyone watching this is part of a shift where as a species, maybe for the first time, we're realizing that we are, there are these problems around us and some of us are part of the problem without realizing we're part of the problem. And so maybe we're taking our head of the sand for the first time or, or, you know, like Plato's cave, allegory of the cave. Maybe we finally are turning around and seeing that we were just looking at shadows and those shadows we interpreted how we wanted to see them. Because if you want to believe that there is this isn't a problem and that you're safe or that your community is safe, it's easy to do that. But it's also easy in most towns in America to find someone who's being forced to have sex for money against their will and, and in the world. 
And so welcome to waking up. I'm proud of everybody. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and uh, who are the most likely victims of trafficking? Statistically, women of color, especially ha uh, homeless or houseless women of color. If you work for an aid organization, you know, I was talking to some people here and I just moved to San Francisco two weeks ago. And I was talking to some um, local public health and safety leaders who especially work with non-governmental organizations and their grants that they receive to help, uh, help trafficking victims. And if you are a woman, period, on the street, you're likely, you're, you're going to get snatched up. They, they say you have hours in a lot of cities in America. If you are a woman on the street who is homeless, you have hours before you might get uh, snatched up by people who, I mean, there was, there was a, a girl in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, which is a small skiing town. And she, she was, and she was white and like didn't fit every demographic that you would expect, but uh, she was abducted and three years later when she was 19 was dropped off at a public park in Arizona. Um, and, and that, yeah, for that period had just been getting sold and used and then, you know, dropped off when they were done with her. Just curious what you mean by snatched up is, is abduction, um, common? Not terribly common. Mo the 99% of trafficking victims. That's the thing. I don't want to be a, um, alarmist, you know, it, you don't have to really, it, it, you're more likely to probably to you know, get struck by light. Well, I can't say that actually, but you know, well, if you're a man, maybe, but there are a lot more things to worry about. Even if you're a woman, a woman of color, unless you're homeless, that other than like somebody running up in a van and throwing you inside of it, that, that isn't, you don't have to live your life worrying about that. But what you do have to live your life worrying about is more likely abusive and coercive romantic relationships that's one of the most common things for an american person is when romance turns into um, a manipulative relationship and that includes for child uh, sex trafficking too where people get into relationships especially when drugs are involved and they end up selling their children for sex as well and so you know maintaining a social that's that first part of that book there is a section that talks about how you can protect yourself from becoming a victim and to be clear nobody can guarantee that they won't become a victim of anything there are going to be things that are outside of our control but um taking personal safety steps uh and maintaining good networks uh, of people to check up on you and communicate with each other that's i mean that's one of the best things outside of the work we can you know that big structural work is you're more protected from becoming a victim of so many different criminal activities just by having people around you who love you and who you love and who you communicate with and see regularly. Good life advice in general, too. <laughs> Absolutely. It's incredible just how broad the scope is in human trafficking. Uh, as a field, there is so much that is, is encapsulated in, um, in just this, this massive understructure, underbelly of victimization that's happening. And, you know, I really, that's what I, I'm, I'm glad that people um, are interested in this. You know, I reached out to you guys and a bunch of other organizations and, uh, or sorry, and podcasts. And um, the response has been really nice and something I'm happy to see because, you know, who doesn't, it's part of one of the reasons I decided to work in this is on this is because uh, who doesn't want to see an end to suffering in, in such a broad and diverse way. So you know, you guys are doing good work out there. And I hope, you know, if people who are out there are interested in the book too, uh, just so they know 100% of the money that Amazon pays out 
for each book sale goes to organizations that are mentioned in the book, like Polaris Project and uh, Love 146. That's awesome. And your timing in all this is pretty um, appropriate and, and very uh, you, like well-timed because there's a, this movement that seems to be happening, and it's been happening over the past few months in the true crime uh, genre, because these podcasters that you know we are and the podcasters that, that, that we're uh, friends with and our peers have always said since we've started that we wanted to do something that was going to end up making a change, and we never want to exploit anything, and we never want to talk about a situation just to get downloads or just to get like a good review on Apple, although a good review on Apple does help. Anyone out there listening? Review them. Uh, <laughs> yes, I did one. <laughs> oh, oh, thank you. Oh, thanks a lot. My yeah. dad has a podcast too, so I am already aware of how important those reviews are. And if you like podcasts, you should review them because it goes a long way, especially if you're a guest. You know, that's one of the first things you look at. Sorry to go off topic, but. Oh, no, it's it's totally on topic because it keeps us going. It does help in keeping us going. And no real question here other than saying you picked a good time, not picked, but you were in a good time to to distribute your message and and harness that power of that community. I say I, I you know part of why I picked it is because I I, I previously uh, did some work in politics and it's just really heartbreaking how you can't even get people to work together on things that they agree are bad. Uh, it's it's really difficult. But my hope is that people this is this is a political research that was done and action that can be taken. Um, and cause I spoke to people who work in this field who have all sorts of different political beliefs, but um, they're doing good work and they're trying to make a difference. And so, you know, I, it, you, by the way, uh, I pulled up what I was looking for there about the action means purpose model. Uh, it's part of, so, you know, in the book, I talk about how RICO, uh, the, the racketeering uh, uh, laws that exist, how those facilitated ending, uh, or not ending, but, but the prosecution of people who are involved in criminal activities. So I talk about in the book some of the differences we can make and how things we can lobby for as individuals and organizations to make basically a RICO for sex trafficking. And the action means purpose model is the current model for understanding the legal structure around human trafficking prosecution. So the action is the recruiter or whoever it is, transports, moves, harbors someone, the means is force, fraud, coercion, and the purpose is to compel the victim to have sex. So my bad, I'm, I'm, I'm messing that up before. I'm, I, I really love digging into uh, less than the models, more the, the policy, because it's, it's just, you know, I, I, got to, I got to speak to a Department of Justice prosecutor who told me they want to pursue these cases, but their job requires that they are good stewards of government resources or tax dollars. And that means estimating how likely they are to get a successful, uh, to successfully prosecute someone and put them away or an organization. And so the laws as written don't facilitate high enough success rates to pursue this. Well, guess what? I, I promise you, most elected officials would support something like this. They're, the elected officials, we want to believe that everyone we disagree with is evil, but most elected officials, their attention goes where campaign donations uh, flow. And so, it, you know, that's a big thing that I cover in the book is um, these are some of the policies that can make a difference. And here's how you actually get elected officials to pay attention to you. 
I uh, am hearing some some indications that you might be running for some sort of political uh, oh, office. Oh, I did I'm, already. I'm getting a sense. I'm getting a sense. I already did. I ran for the U.S. House of Representatives previously, um, and uh, that was the, in some ways a disheartening experience, but I, I realized um, that we have a lot more effect to be made by facilitating, bringing resources to people who are doing the work. I enjoyed a lot of my time working in politics. I ran for the U.S. House in, in, uh, in, in Washington State. It was a good experience. You know, it's a, it's a red-leaning district, but I, I really enjoyed, uh, pretty solidly red, but I made friends in 30 different towns across that district uh, in, in areas that had never had a Democrat come there before. And I also realized I don't like working in the Democrat-Republican structure as parties. I think to make real policy changes, we need to step outside uh, well, everybody can't, but but some of us need to step outside of the political structure and lobby for good policy that can be supported apolitically. And you don't get to do that if I have a D or an R next to your name or any letter, you know? Yeah, yeah. So what is it about the political structure that is preventing change from being made? Money. Money is number one. That's part of why I'd, I I don't know if I could ever work in politics again in that respect or run for office. I, I love working with people, but I got news for folks. Politicians are mostly like telemarketers. Even the even the really rich ones and really successful ones, they spend out like eight hours a day sometimes uh, just calling rich people around the country to ask them to donate to their campaign. So that's that's I don't want to be a telemarketer even if it's even if uh, even if I get to vote on laws. Having met a few folks at in the, at the level, that level in politics, and, and granted, I don't know you know, if they're employing, you know, if they're, you know, another sex tourism is a big one too. People who, you know, uh, travel to have sex and the people are having sex with our victims, which is very common. I still think that if campaign donations and public support push them, they would support the right laws. I really do. And maybe that's just the optimist in me, but, and it's covered in the book extensively about how the power, the real, swear, sincere, I swear to goodness power of writing a letter or an email that's, that you have to put energy into it. And, and also donations, whether it's to elected officials who support these policies that you want to see or and letting their, their, the people they're running against maybe know that, that your support is contingent on that. Letting them know that this is going to decide your vote and where your dollars go, these laws will get passed. If you live in a small town, let me tell you something. In in a town of of you know 10, 20, 30,000 people, you can get a you can get a city council just with if you have 20 people, you can get a city council to pass whatever you want. If you are even in, in a large city, you know, go to San Francisco and you get a thousand people who are willing to write a letter and an email and actually put energy into that, that, that will make an impact. That, that energy, not to sound too woo-woo, but if you put your energy into that and we do that together, that's what creates a wave. That's all those droplets of water. And if they aren't willing to make that change and take your vote and take your, your dollar, then someone will pop up who's gonna say, well, if that's what you guys want, I'll accept your donations and your votes and get it done. And that's the value of civil action. A thousand people in a big city, 20 people in a small town, a million people across America, less than that, really. A hundred thousand people across America 
donating as a unified, make that your single issue. Make ending sex slavery in this country and hope preferably in the world, make that your single issue and you can't really go wrong. And nobody's gonna hate you for doing that. Even the people who go to those sex workers aren't going to hate you. I'm pretty sure most people who use those services would rather not be part of this victimization structure. And again, maybe that's the optimist in me, but I, I think a lot of the people, I mean, it's like drugs. The drug culture is, is part, so many people die to get cocaine to this country. And I don't think any cocaine users are happy about that, but it doesn't stop them from using it. Maybe we need to find another solution. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. Can you take us through some of the trafficking scenarios that you laid out in your book? I was expecting to see like three or four, but instead there's like eight or nine. It's a little surprising. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, some of the scenarios in there are, um, say, a, a young woman or young person who's being uh, coerced through a new online friend, which is a story I'm sure you know, we maybe some of us have seen in afternoon specials, depending on how old you are, but it's a real thing and it's evolving incredibly quickly. And, and parents are less able to stay on top with that as time goes by. And so just my, my word from, from officials, or like from people who study this, if, if you, if you want to do all those things, like have parental locks and that kind of stuff, go ahead and try if you want, but nothing is going to protect your child from online, being an online, being used for to make money from sex through online means, nothing will protect them more than you having a good relationship with them and them being able to come to you if they are being blackmailed or if they're scared or if they've done something they regret. And so that, that scenario that I talk about in there, very important uh, to remember. Then you have the people who are, like I said, shipped in shipping containers, containers they owe money. Uh, that's what they're told when they get here is you owe money and this is how you're going to work it off. And those are usually people, uh, like I said, of foreign descent, uh, especially in, uh, from Asian countries. Um, you have uh, trafficking victims who come across the borders with drugs. And again, you know, that's their bodies are being used and they're being treated like a commodity to be bought and sold as if their humanity doesn't value. Um, and then, you know, in some of the scenarios in the book, too, I do mention the Jeffrey Epstein case, um, you know, since that was more high profile. I mentioned the Michael Jackson case, which grooming is, is what I talked about there. And that's absolutely something to pay attention to. I was a wrestling coach previously, and we had very specific rules about never, never even being able to give the impression that you were giving preferential treatment to a child. There are people who defend Michael Jackson, but the fact is he was in bed with children and he didn't even deny that. He denied that he had sex with children, but not that he was in bed with them and a lot of other inappropriate behaviors that are undeniably classical grooming behaviors. And so understanding what those things are when a relationship is inappropriate between a child and an adult, or even an adult and adult, because those grooming patterns are the same in a toxic relationship where somebody ends up getting used for sex. Um, Understanding when somebody's using you, when they're not respecting your boundaries, um, when they're gaslighting you, those are crucial to be aware of and to look out for with your loved ones. And, and that brings us back to that, that social circle thing is, is, you know what, if you want to carry pepper spray, go ahead. But the best thing you can do to protect yourself and your loved ones is to have a cohesive unit 
of people who care for each other and check in a lot and are honest with each other if something's going bad. Yeah, I have to say the boyfriending one might have been the scariest one for me because you could potentially bypass that trusted group because you could let this person into your inner circle. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I mean, violence against women, like I said, it's just this, this, this huge huge problem in this country and unfortunately a lot of times with boyfriending you end up in a situation where you're who, who's comfortable telling someone that they like I, I think you're in a bad relationship and it's scary what friend is is willing to um that's that's tough because you don't know how they're gonna if they're gonna be mad at you at the time it's what's gonna happen they're gonna become more alienated and um that you know it's it's uh it's worth keeping an eye out for with your loved ones. And there aren't really clear cut solutions on how to protect it. Danger can come into your life in a lot of different ways, but being aware is so much of protecting yourself. Knowledge is your ultimate armor that you can access, you know? Okay. This um, is also a good segue for uh, the question that I didn't know how to ask earlier, which is the way that the media kind of trivializes this topic, this, you know, sex trafficking and the adjacent subject matter ch- topics that go along with it, uh, they they trivialize it in, in their coverage of the Epstein trial that you mentioned. They trivialize, I mean, the Amber Heard-Johnny Depp trial is happening right now, and there are memes going around about it. And I feel like that's significantly trivializing an enormously serious issue. Um, There'll be times when I'm at the gym, like on the treadmill and and law and orders on TV nonstop there. I don't understand like how it's possible that that show is on TV. It's motivating. If you're on the treadmill, it motivates you. Do you like, like there's killers everywhere. So I need to get moving on this treadmill. Yeah, exactly. I I run like crank it up to like 13 miles an hour, but (laughs) Um, yeah. So I, I, but every episode that's on there is, is like every other episode is so like a sex trafficking ring. And it just feels yep. like so, so like thin by the time you want to approach it in a real way and, and address it. Yeah. There's this illusion that happens in our society. And this illusion is that proximity is action. So that if we're seeing a lot of something or we're talking about something a lot, that we're making a difference. Um, I mean, gosh, and I haven't paid attention to the Johnny Depp Amber Heard stuff an incredible amount, but there's video of her even saying people aren't going to believe you because you're a man. And I want to give a shout out too to the uh, Surviving Abuse podcast because they specifically focus on men's stories uh, and experience, lived experiences um, with abuse. And uh, you know, for for the folks who who that can help heal. That's important. But what I want is for action. And you don't have to make this your whole life. People can go out there and say, I want to do something about it. I'm going to donate $5 a month to uh, the Polaris project, your recurring monthly donation, whatever it's going to be, Love 146. Uh, I'm going to send some emails to uh, you know, my city council member. It's seriously an hour's worth of work. And when you get responses, if they give the right ones, you can donate to their campaign and follow up with them if you want. It, 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 it doesn't take an incredible amount of effort, but 
you don't have to, you don't have to live your life hyper-focused on these things. It doesn't have to become your world. And that's so much what this book is, is I'm trying to give everybody a minimum effective dose for civil action and for change. Now, if you're trying to raise the minimum wage, that's a lot tougher. That is, that's a, that's a heavy lift. Believe I'm saying, I'm here saying right now, you and I have more power to end sex slavery or a huge amount of it than we do probably to minim- raise the minimum wage. And I'm, it hurts me to say that in some ways, but we have a lot of power in this space. The uh, politics moves at the speed of attention and money. And so, you know, law and order is out there and there's, there's trivialization and people, you know, are, are absolute, but what can we do about it? I, you know what? I say, if you set up $5 monthly donations to any of the amazing organizations that are fighting for, for this, you can forget about it and put your hand back, head back in the sand and never feel bad about it. Really, never feel bad about it because you have done more than the vast majority of people and what you did will make a difference. And your book, you're donating to those organizations. Can you just give a little bit on each one of them so people know what they, uh, what they represent? Absolutely. Uh, Love 146 was started by a gentleman who actually helped uh, more on the law enforcement side with protecting or with, with trying to find victims and, and help them and, and, and prosecute the people who are going after them, mostly uh, multinationally. Um, and they just provide an incredible amount of aid and support to victims as well as to research that's done. The Polaris Project is uh, probably the top organization in this domain. And a lot of what they do is, again, it's trying to find new ways to approach this issue and to lobby for victims' rights. They also do provide victim aid services, but they're they're a huge organization that's doing an incredible amount of stuff. And, And multinationally, again, which I think is important, as much as we want to help our communities, we do need to work together. And, and that's why, you know, there's, there's over 25 million trafficking victims estimated worldwide. And so they're out there, the Polaris Project, especially providing educational resources to, to help people, providing training to people. Um, and again, those victim advocacy resources where uh, they can help get people the help they need to get back on their feet because there are people who end up in sex slavery and basically get told you can leave anytime you want. What are you going to do? What do you have? And so those are two really great organizations I want to shout out. Um, and that's, again, 100% of the money from the book goes to that. I'm, I'm putting my time in here because um, it's easier to sleep at night if you're trying to make the world a better place, I think, if you, if you feel like you're making some sort of contribution. And um, so I hope the people who, who are listening to this uh, check out the book because I, I list a bunch of those great organizations. And uh, it's only a few bucks on Amazon or just go and donate to them also. That's a great thing to do. And then, like I said, go you can give yourself permission, put the head back in the sand. You don't have to think about this stuff all the time. You are doing something about it. And if a million people did that, it'd be one of the top political issues in the country. So like, it, 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 like I said, attention and money, that's what, that's what moves the needle. And you said that you, um, wanted to save something until the end you started something and you said you wanted to save it until the end there's all the policy stuff that's all just or, the, the, or not the policy the the donation stuff just oh, okay even, even if you're broke that five dollars a month i'm telling you it adds up you just set it and forget it um because you you can make a big difference you can send in the books there's instructions for what you can say 
to elected officials um, that you can send that email in five minutes. You can do it on your lunch break. And it, it'd be, it, yeah, there's, there's resources out there for you to send like form emails, but they just delete those, they throw them out. They don't care about them. If you like sit down and write a letter, it's way more likely to have an impact than an email. And an email that you take the time to write will have more of an impact than a form email that's copy pasted. So my point is, um, you know, if you take that time, 20 minutes to write a letter and, and put it in the mailbox, makes a big difference. We can do it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we commend you on your work. It's, it's really excellent work. Uh, I think a lot of it is due to the fact that you take uh, an educational approach. You, people better understand the problem if they're properly educated about their history and like the real history of their community and their society instead yeah. of the uh, projected image that is, that is uh, displayed. You figured that out because you traveled to numerous different cultures and you saw how they handled uh, their community and their, their society and how they knew investing in them would be a great return. Yeah. For, it for really inspired me. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's super important to highlight that it's not something that you just kind of conceived and now you're going about like a scientific approach of like uh, testing and seeing what works. Like you saw it, you saw yeah. how properly educating, properly giving back, properly investing in, in a community only returns good. That is one of the truest things I think I've ever heard of anybody say investing in your community trying to make a difference, it literally only produces good. Like I, you cannot, you can't go wrong and life can be tough to live. I'm, I'm a, you know, a, a big fan of existentialist philosophy and actually fun fact too, Martin Luther King Jr. was a really big uh, fan of existentialist philosophy, but uh, each of, you know, part of existentialism is each of us has sufficient reason to be miserable. They're just, by the fact of being alive, all of us really have plenty of reasons to be unhappy. You know, whether you want to call it karma or just getting right with Jesus or whatever your, your, your view is, I promise you, you, you know, I, I witnessed it. I saw it in all these different countries from, from India to the Emirates to, you know, Kuwait. When people are invested in, when people are cared for, when good is done, then good comes back out of it and we have the chance to do some good and no amount of good is too small.